Well, I don't know if it'll make you feel any better. We were standing in the back when you said that uh, you didn't believe you were old enough to be a grandfather, and several people that I was with uh, thought to just share with you that uh, they think you are. <laughs> so, take comfort in that. We have uh, reached the halfway point in our sessions uh, dealing with the subject of integrity, and over the past several weeks, um, we've wrestled with what we've said or what we believe integrity is. Can move a little, a little more comfortable for you. Much better for me. <laughs> uh, and uh, we've wrestled with what we thought integrity is versus what the Bible had to say about integrity. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is at times to uh, get rid of the preconceptions that you have about certain subjects? Or once you formulate an opinion, how hard it is for somebody to convince you otherwise? Even though the evidence that they have, you're convinced that the subject matter at hand, you're an expert at, even though they present irrefutable evidence to the contrary, it still is difficult for you to believe otherwise. And we've been wrestling with that through integrity because many of us had a preconception of what we thought integrity was, and then we deal with what the Bible teaches that it is. And so here we are wrestling with what is it versus what we thought it was, and has our opinion changed over the course of the last three or four weeks? And it's difficult at times, once you think you know something, to be convinced of the opposite. In fact, to illustrate it, we had a, uh, an opportunity this past year, I was back in the southeast, and a couple of friends of mine uh, live in uh, the Atlanta, Georgia area. And um, so we're going to go out deer hunting. And the, uh, the one gentleman uh, lived back there in Atlanta, the other just moved back there, and uh, one of my friends had gone deer hunting many times, in fact, knew of several places on the border of Georgia and Alabama and the foothills there that were great places to go deer hunting. And uh, so what we thought we'd do is we'd take uh, the other friends who had just moved to Atlanta and never been hunting in his life before, and I had opportunities as I grew up in Pennsylvania to go out and go deer hunting every now and then. And um, so the two of us had gone, the one friend had never gone. So what we wanted to do was make this an enjoyable experience for him. So we got to where we wanted to be, and it was an area that Bart had been many times before. And so uh, he said, well, well, Chuck and I are going to go up here. And George, we want you to go this way. You go toward the south. And what we'll do is, since we've been hunting already, we'll, we'll chase him down your direction. That'll give you the opportunity to enjoy hunting for the first time and enjoy the experience, whatever. So we went up to the north, and about, oh, 20, 30 minutes later, into our walk up through there, we hear a boom, boom. And so, oh, that's great. It came from the south. George was down that direction. Let's go check it out and see what happens. So we marched down there. We walked down there. And the closer that we got, we heard this argument taking place. And the closer that we got, we recognized that one of the voices was George. The other one was a voice that we had never recognized before. And the closer that we got, the louder the argument took what was going on. And so we got up to him, and we could just barely see him. And the last thing we heard was this. The man whose voice we didn't recognize said, okay, okay, it is a deer. But at least let me take my saddle off before you drag it away. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's the last time we ever went with him, by the way. But uh, see, integrity is a lot like that. You know, you may think what you may and believe what you wish. But just as a horse will never be a deer, so integrity will never be anything less than what God says it is. And what God has said it is, based on what we have studied up to this point, is that a person of integrity, a man or woman of integrity, walks in a manner that's pleasing to God. 
obedient to God's ways, and continues to do so, trusting the Lord despite the circumstances and the pressure that comes from a hostile environment. I don't know if you realize it or not, but if we went around this room, I believe we'd have a lot of fun talking about how difficult it is to stand for something that God says is right versus what others say may or not be right. We live in a world where there are no longer any absolutes. And whatever is convenient for that moment in time is what becomes a standard uh, for the decision that needs to be made. If you have been in a situation where you are convicted of what God has said was right or wrong, and you've tried to maintain that conviction and that standard, then you've probably recognized that there's a world out there that's pretty hostile to those people who say there is one way to do things. See, most of the time when, everybody, when anybody says that there's not, oh, I mean, don't, there's no absolutes. Uh, what makes you think you're right? What makes you think that I'm wrong? Why do you know, and a lot of, you know, they come up with that all the time. It's like, why is there an absolute? There doesn't need to be an absolute because my opinion is equally valid as yours. Well, if you've ever tried to live in, a, in an environment and held to a standard that God says is right or wrong, and you've tried to maintain that conviction, then you've felt the hostility that there is present around you. And so as we enter the subject of integrity, the questions that I have, does integrity really work in the marketplace today? Is there a place where there is uh, a spot for absolutes? Can we be sure that the absolutes that God is saying are right is to our advantage, or do you see it as a disadvantage? Many of us who deal with people that seem to be, um, that don't have standards, and compromise, or better yet, they develop their standards as, as the need arises, we would think that we're at a disadvantage because God says to do things a certain way. We feel like if we had a little more flexibility in the program and we could kind of manipulate and change some things here, we're competing against a world that has no standards. And as a result, we must be at a disadvantage because we have to live a life that's predictable in a certain way, in a certain pattern. So we think, because our cards are exposed, so to speak, everything's laid out on the table, or it should be according to what God teaches us about how we should live, everything should be exposed. There should be no gossip, no, um, no hypocrisy in each of our lives. We should be transparent, we should be honest. But guess what that means? We have no cards to hold to our chest. So it's all laid out on the table, and for many of us, if you've played cards or whatever in the past, uh, you go, gee, you don't. <laughs> I really like this illustration somewhere. <laughs> Not this one. Well, anyway, you know, so you, 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 you know, you lay it all out, and you think, well, gee, if I lay it all out, then they know what I've laid out, and they can come up with something that'll beat me. So it must be to our disadvantage to follow God in God's ways. Because God's ways are always absolute, they're always transparent, they're always up front. Everybody knows the game we're playing. Everybody knows the cards that are in our hands. So the question as we go through it this morning, I think many of you have come to the conclusion that it's not good for us to expose our cards. It's not good for us to lay out our hand. So we're going to hold back some things, and we're going to keep those as aces, so to speak, in the hole, in case we have to adjust our philosophy, or in case we have to adjust our principles. Some of us have adopted a mindset that says, you know what, we can't be competitive in the work environment that we're in. We'll keep our, quote, Christianity over here on Sundays, and we'll do whatever it takes to survive all during the week, 
because if we apply those principles, we're going to be at a disadvantage, so that can't be right. So we say, we'll keep it here on Sunday, and we'll live different all the rest of the week, and then we'll come back on Sunday again, and we'll make things right with God, we'll clean up our act, we'll do whatever we have to do, and then we'll begin Monday morning again with a clean ethical shirt, we'll sew it all week long, and then we'll change it again the next Sunday, and we'll continue to do that way. Somewhere along the line, you and I have bought into the mindset that says, you know what? Your Christianity, your, quote, religious beliefs, uh, your, quote, absolutes, those are fine for you. Keep them to yourself. Don't share them with anybody else. And certainly don't try to integrate them into the rest of your life. So we come from a mindset that we say, this is Sunday, this is the rest of the week, I'll do this on Sunday, and I'll do whatever it takes the rest of the week to survive. Is that what God wants? The funny thing is that you and I are being convinced that we should integrate everything else into our life on a daily basis. Make it all part of your life except for your relationship with the Lord. Keep that separate, keep that private, don't bring it in over here. And the real issue at hand is, is that what God has to say? Does God want segmented Christians? Does he want us to segregate our beliefs and our trust and confidence in him and relegate it to an environment that's uh, a little more pleasant, for example, here? We can come in here and we can boast about our relationship with the Lord. We can say how we're standing firm, how we're holding fast. We can blow smoke at each other until the Lord comes back again. And then we get out in the, in the real, quote, world, the non-insulated world, and we can't tell the players from one another. So that's really the issue when you talk about integrity. integrity. Integration or segmentation? That's the principle we'll look at. Does God want you to integrate into every area of your life the absolutes that he teaches in this book? You know, the saddest thing in Christendom today is that for some reason we've become people that have tremendous biblical knowledge, so to speak, that we have a head knowledge where we cannot make that transference into our lives on a regular basis. We know what the Bible has to say to a certain degree, but we don't know how to incorporate that into our life day to day. We don't know how to incorporate it into our business relationships and our business decisions. We don't know how to co incorporate it into uh, teaching our children. We don't know how to incorporate it into, uh, into even uh, the, the standards or the principles that we have ourselves. We, we know it over here, but we segregate it because we're being told that's good for you to keep it over here. But when you're in this environment, you, you're going to do things this way. This is the way we do things here. This is our corporate policy. This is what's in our uh, manuals. This is the way we do things. That's fine. Do it here. We're going to do this over here. Is that what Daniel did? We've seen in the life of Daniel, for example, that he did incorporate what he believed, and he took it with him to Babylon. Daniel was led captive uh, as part of the exile from the land of Judah by the Babylonians who came in, captured the land, and took out a band of people that they were trained and to uh, incorporate into the Babylonian way of thinking. So, you know, we would we, we put it, uh, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. Here was a man who was uh, a slave. He was taken out of slavery. He was put into the Babylonian university to be trained for three years to work for the king. It was going to be a tremendous position of power and prestige. And his options were very simple. You're going to do things like this, or you're going to go back out and pound rocks. What is it you want to do? And so as we were forced to, to recognize the same challenge, I wonder how many of us would say, stay here or pound rocks, stay here or pound rocks. Gee, it doesn't seem that tough to me. Uh, these hands were not made for a mallet. 
And so we justify and we say this, things like, God put me in this position, so he must want me to stay here. And I can't believe that this little compromise in this area is going to affect my relationship with the Lord, because after all, we are under grace today. We don't want to be legalistic about it. We don't want to get into things that, you know, and I'm not really sure if that's right or wrong. So what you do is you just assume that it's not because you don't want to investigate whether it is. So there you go. Ah, it's easy to compromise and rationalize it. And I'm going to stay here because God wants me to be here. He brought me here. He didn't bring me from slavery to the highest uh, uh, position in the king's court for me to lose this position now. He didn't take you where you were to put you where you're at so that you can go back to where you came from, did he? So you compromise, you rationalize, and say, I can be more beneficial here. The one problem that I have, and that Daniel had, and all men and women of integrity, according to the word of God, have, is that they realize the foundation for our belief and trust in Jesus Christ is that God still demands obedience rather than sacrifice. God wants a people that are obedient to his word. If you're obedient, you don't have to worry about... Uh, gee, wonder if God wants me in this position or not. Hey, if you're obedient and you maintain that position through your obedience, then that question's already answered. He does. And if he doesn't, he'll move you out of there. If you're obedient and you're there, he wants you there. If you're disobedient and you're there, then you're wrestling with, gee, wonder what he wants me here for. Or wonder if he really wants me here at all. If you're disobedient, that's what it takes to stay there. He doesn't want you there because he still demands obedience rather than sacrifice. Daniel knew that principle. He said, I don't care what position you put me in, king. I'm still going to always obey my God and his laws and his statutes, his commandments. And if it means I lose this position, I'll go break rocks. I don't really care. And so we saw that he was creative instead of compromising when he was put to the test. We saw his friends had courage over cowardice when they were thrown into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says, worship me or you're going to burn in the furnace. And they said, hey, our God can save us if he wants. But if he chooses not to, then that's okay too because we'll never worship your idol. So that was what it came down to. We will always obey God rather than man. The bottom line in our walk with the Lord is, if you're being obedient to God, you're obeying Him, then you can rest assured that you're where He wants you to be. But if you're not, and you're somewhere He doesn't want you to be, you're struggling right now, and you're trying to justify it, and you're trying to rationalize it, and it ain't any fun. That's what we're looking at in the life of Daniel. The question is, are the requirements of God a hindrance or a tremendous asset for the people of God? Are they a hindrance or an asset? One man recently at a seminar said that you realize that Christians have an unfair advantage in the marketplace. They have an unfair advantage in the marketplace. You know why? His conclusion was that if you are one of God's people doing things God's ways, then you already know the end of the story and you're tapped into it, the solution before the problem even arises. You got an unfair advantage in your life. You and I have an unfair advantage in that we can tap the wisdom of the universe. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives abundantly without reproach. You and I are in a position where we can get the answers to life's problems, and nobody else can tap into it. The people around you who are not tapped into the living God don't have access to that resource. God knows the end of the story. He knows the beginning, he knows the present, he knows the end, and what a tremendous advantage that is for you and I. But do you really believe that? 
Do you believe it's an asset to be tapped into this? Or do you believe it's a hindrance and it keeps you from being more successful in the eyes of the people around you? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Daniel chapter 2. As we take another uh, illustration of the life of Daniel and this whole uh, subject of integrity. It's important as we get to uh, Daniel chapter 2 that we understand that um, this book is a book of prophecy. It is a book that um, foretells the mysteries, what the Bible calls are the mysteries of the future, but basically what that means is that there are things that were previously unrevealed. And so as you read the book of Daniel, you begin to see that there are a lot of prophetic um, statements that are made here about events that at the time that it was written had not taken place. We look back on it and say, gee, that's not that big a deal, you know, because history has proven that all these things have happened. The problem is that what God was saying in this chapter, he was telling before it actually took place. So that may have been two or three or five or seven or eight or nine hundred years into the future of some of these events that we're going to read about would actually occur. Some of them have not occurred yet. So as we read about what God has to say, we need to realize that as we look at this whole subject of prophecy, the trustworthiness of God, the foundation of us being able to trust God and it is it His ability not only to reconstruct the past for us, but also to tell us of what to expect in the future. The question that we can ask ourselves as we go through this, if you've ever heard anybody say it, what's this world coming to? That is the basis of this chapter in Daniel chapter 2. God will tell us what this world is coming to in a dream that he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the, the bottom line of the story. In um, chapter 2, we'll start with verse 1. We're going to look at six truths about Daniel's life as it applies to integrity. And the first one is found in verses 1 through 13. If you move along with me now. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic and said, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor, and therefore declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen the command from me is firm. But if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. And as much as no king, no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant. 
and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the king went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. The first thing I want you to notice about the life of Daniel is the challenge that is presented to him in this particular situation. So you can see Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Actually, if you look at verse 1, it says that he had dreams, which would mean that this was a reoccurring dream. Here's a man who now was on top of the world. Literally, he was on top of the world. He was the king of the world. And the Egyptians, uh, which had a great empire, never had a world empire like the Babylonians did. Because every pharaoh knew that if they stayed within the confines of Egypt, that they were protected by the rivers around them, and they were also protected by the uh, desert to the north. They never had to go anywhere. They never had to leave that environment to maintain the safety that came along with that. Babylon was the first great world uh, empire in that this particular empire stretched throughout all of that particular region of the world. Nebuchadnezzar was now the head of all of it. Have you ever gotten a position in, in maybe your business where you're at the top and you're thinking about why did this happen? How did I get here? What am I doing here? I don't understand any of this. And over and over in your mind you're thinking, what's the purpose of me being here? Maybe you're not at the very top of wherever it is that you are, but you're at the top of maybe a division that you're in, or you're at the top of a company that you're in, uh, or you're at the top in some respect as far as a circle of influence that you have. And if you're really honest with yourself, you begin to ask questions like, how did I get here, versus other people that I know who are smarter than me, who are better than me, uh, who had more ability than I did, and they're not here and I'm here, what am I doing here? See, if you've ever really been honest with yourself and transparent about that, you, you may have had some dreams like the one Nebuchadnezzar's having. He's laying in bed thinking, how did I get here? And what is the purpose of all this? What am I doing here? And it wasn't just one dream. It was a reoccurring dream, although it was the same dream, a dream that was similar as we see where it says in verse 3, I had a dream. My spirit is anxious to understand this dream. Verse 1 indicates that it's been a, uh, a dream that he continues to have over and over and over again. I keep seeing the same thing. I keep wrestling with the same thing. And as he laid to bed at night, I've got to think that he was thinking about what he was doing at the top of the hoop where he was at. What direction he was going to go. And if you've ever gotten to the top, you've probably had the same thought. How long am I going to stay here? How long am I going to stay here? Did you thought about that? How long until they find out? <laughs> that I really shouldn't be here. <laughs> if you've wrestled with that, then you can identify with what he's going through. It's like, man, how did I get here, and how long am I going to stay here? So he asked, and he had this dream, and he was troubled by it, and sleep left him. I mean, this, is, this thing is really eating at him, really bothering him. So in verse 3, he said, But I had a dream. My spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And so he called in all his magicians and his conjurers and his Chaldeans and all these people that were supposed to be able to interpret the future. I like what they say. The challenge is, do you notice what the challenge is? What does he want them to do? Okay, yeah, he's not saying, uh, would you give me an interpretation of this dream? He's saying, would you, my gentlemen, telling me what I've been dreaming, and then you can tell me the interpretation of the dream. Why is that so important? Why was that important? Why do you think it was important? To prove it was valid. Yeah. Okay, to prove what was valid? That they were able to really interpret the truth of the dream. Okay, do you hear that? He wanted them to tell, the, tell uh, him what dream he had first, 
Because he came to the conclusion that, you know what? You know what? These guys have been telling me things now for a long time. And I, and I always tell them what I dreamt, and they may tell me what's going to happen. I just wonder once, if they're really good at this stuff, why can't they tell me what, I had, what my dream was? And then they give a lot more validity to their interpretation of it. You follow? It's easy. See, this is so funny. You know, you get to people blowing smoke with people all the time talking about what's going to happen in the future and all this kind of garbage and stuff. You know, it, it's really good as you can say, why don't you tell me all about my past, and then maybe if you tell me anything about the future, I'll put a little more credibility on it. But don't go tell me what my future is like. You don't know anything about me today or anything about my past. The interesting thing is that that's exactly what smoked out these phonies. They couldn't tell them. You notice that. He said, the command for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, I'll tell you limb from limb. And your house will be made of rubbish heap. Nebuchadnezzar had a real interesting temperament. <laughs> we saw that last week. We've seen it all throughout. This guy is just prone to emotional outbursts, isn't he? It's like, yeah, I don't care. You don't tell me. I'm going to rip you all apart. I'm going to wreck your houses, too, after you're done. In fact, I'll use probably body parts to beat them down. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Stephen, is, see, I don't have any retractions from last week, and I'm not going to do that one either next week. <laughs> Okay, here we go. It says, uh, but if you declare the dream and its interpretations, you receive from me gifts, a reward, and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. You know, I love this because it's like all or nothing. You know, that's God's program. It's all or nothing. There's no in-between. There's no walk in the fence. There's no middle ground. It's all or nothing. And see, that's where God is. And he's going to reveal that to us as we go through this. God knows all, or he doesn't know anything. Jesus Christ is Lord, or he's lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said. There is no middle ground in, in our assessment of who Jesus Christ is. See, he didn't allow us to have any other position rather than all or nothing. You get people who say, gee, you know, Jesus Christ is a great guy. He was a good teacher. He was good, uh, good philosophy. Uh, I like the things that he taught. Well, then you don't know what he taught. Because he said he was God. He never gave you the option to call him just a great teacher or a great moral teacher or whatever you want to call him. He said he was God. So either he's God or he's not. If he is, then we better tune into what he had to say. And if he's not, then that's your choice to come to that conclusion. But there's nowhere in the middle that he allows us to be. Either he is or he isn't. Either he's Lord or he's a liar. He's a lunatic. He's not God. And he's not a good moral teacher. Nobody that taught that he was God could be a good moral teacher because there's only one God. So here's a position here where Nebuchadnezzar comes to the same conclusion. It's all or nothing, guys. You're either going to tell me everything, and I'll reward you with everything, or you're going to tell me nothing, and I'm going to kill you. That's the challenge that's laid out before Daniel. And I'm going to show you how Daniel got involved in this. So it says that, and they bought some time. The king said, oh, let the king tell the dream. They kept going back to him. Tell us the dream. Tell us the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I, I'm starting to pick up on something here. How did they tell you the dream? Understand what I'm saying? Read my lips. Read my Babylonian lips. I'm not telling you the dream. You're going to tell me the dream, and you're going to tell me the interpretation. And so this is the story, goes, and there's a lot of agitation going on here. So I like what they said. Look at verse 10. So the Chaldeans answer the king and says, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. 
Listen careful. There's not a man on earth who could declare this matter for the king, and as much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Did you see what they just did? What did they just do? What did they say? They, they set it up so that, that when Daniel does give the interpretation, that the glory goes to God. Okay, you see that? Nobody but God can know your thoughts and tell the future. You remember when Jesus said to Nathaniel, when I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel said, my Lord and my God. You know why I said that? Because Jesus knew his thoughts as he stood under the tree. Jesus knew what he was thinking as he stood under the tree. David wrote, wrote, God, search me and know my ways. You know my every thought. You know when I rise up. You know when I go to sleep. You know everything that's on my mind. Everything Hebrews said is laid open and bare before him with whom we have to do. Jesus Christ is God of the universe who knows every thought of every person that's in this room. That is what the Bible teaches. There is nothing that you can hide from the God of this universe. And see, what they're saying was, only God can tell your dream, only God can know your thoughts, and only God can tell what the future holds. But you know what else they did when they just said that? They just indicted themselves. Because guess what they just said? By the way, everything else that we've told you now for the last so many years, we made it up. But there were enough of us who were smart that we all stood together and we had this little forum and there was just you and there was me and there was Charlie the Chaldean and there was Michael the Magician. You know, when we all got together, we looked pretty sharp, didn't we? But you know what we did? We lied to you. And you believed it. <laughs> you know what that, you know what it reminds me of? A bunch of smart academic idiots <laughs> that are on television or in the media or in print. You know what? You know what? Just, this is, this is, it ties in kind of. <laughs> it does to a certain degree. First of all, are there any teachers out here? Any teachers? Okay, here comes a retraction, okay? <laughs> No, I just didn't. Not at all. But if you're a teacher, okay, here's the deal. My son, he's in third grade. He's, got a, he's doing this report on blue whales, all right? The blue whale. I can tell all about the blue whale because I just about got it done for him. <laughs> this kid, this kid's incredible. He, um, huh, why are you in eight? Oh, man, I'll tell you what. This is this is uh, this is quality family time at its best. Oh. So anyway, we're we're kind of we're, we're doing this thing together. We really are. And um, so the first chapter of one of the reference books we guess was the blue whale. Twelve to fifteen million years ago, the blue whale walked on land. <laughs> That's the beginning of this book on blue whales. 
And I said, Ryan, this shit five months out? <laughs> and then they go on to say, the blue whale left the land and went into the water because they thought there'd be more room to grow. <laughs> this person that wrote this book has a PhD. I'm going to hear you say, who's the author of this? And that's how this book starts. The whale knew it should go into the water because it was getting too big for land. And it couldn't find those little shrimp-like creatures called quail that lives in plankton. So it went into the water, and now it can grow to 100. And then they go on to say, and the reason it can grow so large is because there's nothing to restrain its growth. So I go through this thing, and I think about all these guys that get together, and they all know so much. They are all so smart. And see, what they'll do is they'll take you or I, who are, oh, we're not from the scientific community, so our opinions are not equally valid with theirs. And I'll sit and go, oh, really? <laughs> and I read this, and uh, I have these characters here who are so smart. And used to blow smoke at the king all the time and say, Yes, sir, we've come to the conclusion, King, that this is what the future holds. Blah, 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 blah. And the king goes, Oh, thank you, oh, wise academic experts of my council. You know what? Let me just tell you, what if I, you men and women, or you guys, as I used to say, don't check your brains out at the door because somebody has a title that they throw in front of you. You read through a book like that and you say, Ryan, i got a major problem. I don't have a PhD, but that's not my problem. <laughs> my problem is, you know what God said? That God created fish to swim in the water. <laughs> we don't really have to get into it a whole lot further than that. <laughs> But let me just read this verse for you. And God created the whales to walk in the land until they decided to throw off their legs and to go for a swim. I don't know. This is so simple. This is so simple to understand. It's a lot simpler to understand that God made fish and mammals to swim in the water because that's the way he did it rather than to believe 12 to 15 million years ago they were walking around in the land and threw off their legs and went for a swim. What is... Then we got into the monkey chart. I said, all right, all right, this is good. I said, why don't we... Right, let me just test this theory for a second. Let's go buy a monkey and we'll let it grow up with us and see if it ever decides to become like you or me. <laughs> now, if it was smart, it wouldn't. But the question is, what in the world? But you know what? People flaunt titles in front of us and we all of a sudden we uh, digress to where we don't know anything. And, it's so, and our faith is so simplistic. 
because they throw out carbon data and they throw out stuff like this and they throw out the fossil records and throw, you know what though? There are good Christian biblical scholars who have the same arguments that they throw out that refute all the garbage that they're saying. But we don't have time, nor do we even have the desire to really look into it because we just want to flow through life and have an easy believism that we don't even know where we stand. And so when we're pressured and when challenges come before us, we lay all of our integrity aside because somebody comes up with a good argument and you say, oh, that sounded pretty good. It does sound good. That's the problem with deception and philosophies that don't line up with the Word of God. It always sounds good. So what Nebuchadnezzar started to realize is, all this stuff sounds real good, but it ain't lining up. So I said, I'm going to test him. You tell me the past, and then I'll believe and you can tell me the future. And if you can't, I'm getting sick and tired of all this baloney that you're shov shoveling my way, and I'm going to rip you apart. So Daniel comes on the scene. Why? Because he's one of the wise men now. He isn't there, but he realizes that they're looking for him too. Says, and in verse 12, he was indignant and furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men. Not just the ones who've always been blowing smoke at about everybody. And so, guess what? They were looking for Daniel and his friends to kill them as well. Daniel has a challenge that he has to meet. And I want you to realize that Daniel was up to the challenge. You and I are faced with challenges every day to stand firm on what God says is right or wrong or to bow down and to bend over and to kind of say, I'll go with the flow. That is the challenge that you and I have. That is the challenge that Daniel had. Are we going to just roll over and say, yep, you're right, or are we going to meet the challenge head on? Daniel made, the second thing we need to notice is a commitment. It says in Daniel in verse 14, he replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Daniel rose to the challenge and made a commitment that he was going to get involved. He was going to get involved in this situation, even though he could probably have looked for a bus schedule to get out of town, but he realized that his dad was not too small for the task that was at hand. We are, con we are confronted with challenges every day, challenging what we believe, our convictions are, and many of us wimp out because we have a very small viewpoint of our God. We limit our God to what we think He should and shouldn't be able to do instead of realizing who exactly what He is. I don't know, but God has created you and I. He's created this universe, and He is still head of the universe, and He can do absolutely amazing things. And when you're forced with a challenge in your business on your convictions about the Word of God, I want you to recognize from the life of Daniel that he was committed to stand firm on what God said was right or wrong, because he realized he wasn't trusting in himself, but he was trusting in the God of the universe who could handle it. He wasn't confident in his own abilities, but he was confident in God's abilities. It's not, it's not bragging, it's not arrogant to say, my God is not too small for this particular situation that's come up. So he went and he said, hey, Ariok, what's the deal, man? What's going on? And with discretion and discernment, he began to realize what the problem was. And you know what he did? He said, uh, I'll go to the king and let me see if I can get involved in this. Do you realize, men and women, that God wants us to be peacemakers? He wants us to be involved with all possible to live in peace with all men. He wants us to be people that bring resolution to problems in life. And for many of us, we walk and turn our head and go the other direction, the first sign of trouble. 
He wants us to be involved, to be peacemakers in this world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. If you're meeting a challenge in your work environment or in your life right now, and uh, you're committed to the Word of God, God wants you to be in a resolution stage. He wants you to get involved. He wants you to be a peacemaker. He wants you to get involved in situations that seem too difficult for anybody but God Himself. Because that's when he'll use you, and that's when he'll shine through you. And so he went through it. And you know the first thing he did? So we see there that, uh, that he had a challenge, he had a commitment. And I also want you to notice in verse 17 that he had some companionship that was important to pull this whole thing off. Then he went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Misha, Azariah, about the matter. You know why he went? In order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. You know what he did? He went to his accountability group. I can just picture this now. He went in to, to Nebuchadnezzar and said, um, King, give me a little bit of time. You know, and, and I know that, that you're already upset because they were trying to buy time. But this is different. Give me a little bit of time, and I'll be back. And I'll give you the interpretation. And I'll also give you a dream. Give me a little bit of time. And so the king granted him the time, and Daniel went around the corner, and he went like this. I don't know who we are going to show about this. <laughs> and he ran to his friend and said, uh, uh, Can I sit in these boys? Because we definitely, I'm limited in my abilities here, and I need to tap in to the connection that I have above. I need to tap into the mercy of God. See, that's really what it's all about. You and I are facing challenges all the time, and I've got to ask you a tough question here. How many of you try to handle it before you tap into the mercy of God? How many of you look for compassion before God before we start to act? A lot of times what we do is we try to run and resolve the problem. We try to drag God behind us. Hope that he's following. Is he still behind us? And we're moving along. You know what the first thing they did was? Hey, this was too big for us. And they recognized when it was too big that they had to turn to God. And they prayed that he would grant them compassion and mercy. And I just want to tell you something. You're in a difficult situation in life. It ain't over till it's over. It ain't over to the fat lady sings, as they say. Don't you ever limit God and what he can do in a situation. Until that door is shut and locked, and it's obvious from the word of God, then it's still open, and God wants people that are persistent in their prayers before him that we may obtain mercy from him and compassion. I'll give you several examples. Abraham negotiated with God in the city of, uh, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He negotiated. It wasn't over. He negotiated with him. It wasn't over then. Moses negotiated with God when he wanted to destroy all of the Israelites when they were worshiping the, the, uh, the golden idol of the calf that they had made. He said, don't destroy them. Would you destroy them and leave us out in the, in the wilderness so the Egyptians can say you brought them out here to slaughter them? And he negotiated with God. It wasn't over until it was over. And in that particular account, it says that Moses changed God's mind. I don't understand that, but what I do understand from the word of God is that God is open and available to us to boldly approach with confidence the throne of grace that we should obtain mercy at the time that we need it. God wants us to turn to him when we need mercy and compassion. It says that David, when his child that they had uh, conceived with Bathsheba and sin, when, the, when the, uh, the child was going to die, it says that David fasted and prayed for seven days and seven nights. And you know why he said it? He goes, in order that I, I don't know, but I may obtain mercy from God. And when the child died, David got up and he washed and he went and he ate. And they said, why did you do what you did? He said, hey, until it was over, you never know if God will grant you compassion in that area. 
somebody's sick and they're dying, you continue to pray for them because you don't know that God may have, that you may have received mercy. And until they're gone, it ain't over till it's over. See, we give up too easy. Hezekiah it was told by the prophet Isaiah that he was going to die and to get his house in order. And Hezekiah cried before the Lord. And you know what the Lord did? He said, Isaiah, go back and talk to Hezekiah again. Tell him I'm going to give him another 15 years. He petitioned the Lord with prayer and God answered his prayer. See, Daniel recognized that. His friends recognized that. And they got together and they said, hey, we need compassion from God. We need mercy in this situation. How many of us turn to him for mercy and compassion? Oh, we could have just easily said, he could have said, you know what? The decree's out. We're all dead men. Let's just write our wills and get our states in order. Say, hey, until I'm dead, I'm not dead. And I'm going to do everything that I can to make this thing right if it's going to be within the will of God to do it. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He didn't throw up his hands. He went to his friends and they prayed about it. And you know what happened? What preceded God's response was the prayer of, a right of righteous men and women. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Don't you ever forget that. Because it was only until they prayed, and after they prayed, it says in verse, look at verse 19, the mystery was revealed to them. Prayer preceded the action of God. Prayer preceded the action of God. And so we looked at this heavenly connection, and you know what? The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever, and for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the men of understanding. It is God who reveals the profound and hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To thee, O God, O my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we have requested of you, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Thank you, Lord. And it says that therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. And Arioch wasn't anything but ecstatic to be able to do it. And he ran into the presence of the king, and he said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who, who can make the interpretation known to the king. Now I want you to notice as you go through this interpretation that it was the connection that Daniel had with the God of the universe. It was the only thing that gave him the ability to do this. You and I are powerless without tapping into him. It's through our weakness that he's made strong that we're made strong. And as you go through this, we recognize this principle is true. And it says, the king answered and said to Daniel, are you able to...